Merry Christmas. You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. I'm glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and lean in as we discover what Christmas says about God. Hi, how's it going? It is good to see you. Carl Jackson is here. He's one of our elders, and he is here to reprimand me. No. Oh, God. I got the wrong message then. Um, actually, you're going to share some, an idea that you guys had that the elders and uh, some others had about how the staff can be blessed this year. This, uh, this last Tuesday night, we had an elders meeting, and there was an idea that we were batting around, and we want to share it with you guys. Um, and the idea is basically this. We want, uh, during this Christmas season, we want to be able to bless the staff that have been laboring so faithfully uh, for all of us. You might have seen it. Uh, we mentioned it in the elder update in the uh, All Church Friday email. If you didn't see it, here's the skin and bones of it is this. Is we would like to bless every staff member on every one of our campuses. And we would like to do that through offering them gift cards for Christmas. They've got a all-staff Christmas party coming up in a couple weeks just before uh, the holiday itself. And we would like each one of them to get a $50 gift card to somewhere. So what we are asking is if you would partner with us and uh, buy a $50 gift card to wherever it is you think they might like to go, uh, and we are going to have boxes that you can drop the gift cards in the lobby at every uh, campus. And over the next couple of weeks, if we can gather those, we would like to bless every one of our staff members this Christmas season. Great. Thanks. Um, I like Bath and Body Works. So, I, no, I don't, I don't like Bath and Body Works. Uh, some people do, though. Some of the staff love it. So it would be a great choice. Uh, I do need to give you a little bit of update. Every year when we come down to, um, every year when we come down to uh, the Christmas season and the end of the year, every church uh, tries to communicate their financial situation because everybody, of course, they're reaching the end of the year is trying to meet their budget and stuff. And so this is something that we try to do every year. Um, our budgeted amount, so the amount of money that the, the church had assumed and by church, I mean you pray into these things before the beginning of the year and you say, well, we think this is the target uh, at the beginning of the year, at the end of November, the goal was to have $10.78 million. What we actually have is $9.67 million, so that's $1.1 million less. Here's the good news. Um, because we were able to see that happening throughout the year, we actually said, well, we're gonna have to, just like you at your house, right? If you realize that you're not probably gonna have as much money as you thought you were, you start cutting out Starbucks or whatever. Uh, well, we didn't drink Starbucks for a while, and so uh, actually our spending is about $1.6 million under, so we're $500,000 to the good, <laughs> which is awesome, right? The Lord's really been uh, kind and gracious. So anyway, the, the month of December, we are trying to uh, finish the end of the year out with about $2.1 million uh, in giving. We'll see what the Lord does, um, bring it in front of you, because a lot of people wait till the end of the year to do their giving and things like that, and that's great, some businesses and things like that, but just wanted to place it in front of you, and um, mostly because I just wanted to tell you how thankful I am, we are, for the generosity of this church. Um, I'm going to talk about the generosity of God here in just a minute, and at the end of the sermon, I'm going to talk about how that influences our generosity, so uh, if you want to go now, you can, that was the sermon. But um, I just want you to know how 
uh, lovely it is to be involved in a church where you see that happening. And I feel like sometimes when I end up saying that kind of thing in a sermon, I, I feel like I'm, I, I wanna say, you're already doing this, but just keep after it type thing. So praise God for uh, his church, his people, and how he's moving the lives of lots and lots of folks who are giving, even in the hard moments of life, because no one knows what the economy's doing. Do we even have an economy anymore? I don't even, I don't even know. But we're thankful that, uh, that we're all trusting Jesus to provide our every need in the midst of it. Um, you need to open your Bible. And you need to open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, every Christmas, I reflect upon the different kinds of things that I've done during Christmas season. I have lots of very interesting stories about Christmas season because uh, usually I would finish school and I would have to go get a job for the Christmas season. Um, where I lived in the Seattle area, there was a store there that, that began in Seattle called Nordstrom, which most of you know began as a shoe store. All my friends uh, for the Christmas season would always go get a job at Nordstrom because they would need all sorts of extra help during the season. Most of them got jobs like in the back doing stocking and stuff, and so I was like, that's what I want, you know? Just put me in the back. I don't, I'm not really a Nordstrom looking kind of guy. I didn't want to wear a suit or nice clothes at all, so just put me in the back where I can put boxes on shelves. But when I went and I applied, uh, they, for some reason, decided that I looked just like a gift wrapper to them. And so they said, you are going to be wrapping gifts for us. Now, if you've ever seen me wrap gifts, you would know that that is a bad judgment on their part completely. But you didn't have to actually, you know, do the wrapping. You just had to construct these little boxes, and then you'd put the stuff that the person bought into the box, and you'd cover it with the little, the little white feathery paper, I don't even know what it's called, and uh, you'd put the box on, and you'd put the bow on, and here you go, and usually you were located right near one of the cashiers, so if you bought something, the cashier would say, we like gift wrap, it's a free service we have, oh, I love that, and then you go over, and you get it covered. And I was always placed in the, in the customer service department, because very few people came there. They realized very early on that I was probably not going to be the best gift wrapper, and so let's put him behind the scenes so he doesn't have to do it very often. But, you know, gift, a lot of people who were doing these jobs were kind of transient. <laughs> they were high school kids and stuff, and so it was very frequent that a lot of people would call in sick when they weren't sick. Well, on one of these occasions, one of the days, it was a Saturday, I remember, a uh, very busy day before Christmas, and they were freaking out because they said, we don't have enough gift wrappers, and so we're gonna have to take the guy from the customer service department, me, and we're gonna have to place him in the area of greatest need that we have, which was women's intimates. <laughs> and I told them at the time, I don't, that's a really bad idea, right? You don't have anybody, they said, we only have for today are, are men, so we're just gonna have to put the, person and so I, I went down and I stood next to the cashier at the women's intimates thing with my ugly sweater on and these men would come and buy their things and the cashier would say do you want to have this gift wrapped and the guy of course is like I don't want to gift wrap it so sure and they didn't tell him who was going to do the gift wrapping and so they would then take his little bag with his stuff in it and he, they'd hand it to me and I would hold his bag and I'd have to reach in, grab whatever it is that he just purchased, place it into the box and do this without making eye contact with him at all. There is no, and he was very, always very surprised, like, oh, so you're the wrapping the gift, you know? And the very silence between the two of us, I have to be there for three straight hours 
It was one of the most awkward, difficult moments of my life. Uh, I, I never, I don't remember ever saying these are nice to any of them. <laughs> I love Christmas though, don't you? You go out and you buy these gifts and it's, um, it is the time of the year that we're, we especially get to show how much we love people through our giving. And that is how you show people you love them. Is you, is you give to them. I don't know if you guys remember the five love languages. It's been a really popular book for a number of years, the five love languages. Uh, the, the, one of them is receiving gifts. So, so the idea is that you have all these love languages and sometimes you like some better than others and you need to learn your spouses or your girlfriend, whatever, their love language so you can best communicate love to them. And so they are acts of service, affirming words, quality time, physical touch, and receiving gifts. What's funny to me is that I've, I've looked at that and said, actually, all of those are receiving gifts, aren't they? I mean, essentially, when I'm doing an act of service for you, I'm giving of my time. If I'm saying words of affirmation, I'm giving of my, of my words and my heart through my words. I'm giving of quality, if I'm doing quality time, right? Giving of my time and physical touch, I'm giving of my person to you. So at the end of the day, you really should just say that, how do I show people that I love them? Well, I give. I even have like a big biblical backing for that. You know, uh, one of the most famous verses in the world, right? John 3.16, that even people who go to football games know because they got the sign at the behind the goalposts every week. For God so loved the world that he, what? He gave. God so loved that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right, we, we know the love of another by how much they're willing to give to us. We're in the midst of this, the beginning of a new series, and uh, every Christmas we try to do a series around Advent, and the idea is that we want to give people uh, an idea of what happened around Christmas and celebrate actually what took place there, one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world, and how important it was that God became man, and particularly in the way that he did it. And so this Christmas, what we're trying to do is ask the question is, what is it that we learn about God by the way that he did this? By the whole Christmas story, what, what is it that we learn about God from Christmas? And this first week, I'm trying to make the argument that we learn that God is generous. Above almost everything else, we learn that God is generous, that he loves, and that loving shows in how much he's given to us. So, very simple kind of outline today. What, what I wanna do first is I want to help you um, realize the generosity of God. I don't think that we think about it as much as we ought to. Realize the generosity of God, and then second, we want to respond to the generosity of God and show you different ways that I think the implications to that. So the first part's actually going to be quite a bit of theology and biblical study, and the second part's going to be just sort of like, okay, so what do we do based upon what we just learned? So here's the first, realizing the generosity of God. And this is where Philippians chapter 2 comes into play. Uh, this little passage in the middle of the book of Philippians, is, a, is actually a really interesting little spot. Um, what's happening in Philippians is the Apostle Paul has received a financial gift from the church in Philippi, who is well known for being one of the most generous churches around. So he's received a financial gift for his ministry, and he's writing a thank you letter to them. I don't know if you've ever 
uh, maybe received a gift for Christmas and, you know, your parents made you write down, dear Nana, thank you for the bunny outfit or whatever it is, right? Um, well, that was a great reference, by the way, to Christmas story for those of you who didn't get it. Yeah, you got it. You and me, brother. We're there, right? The rest of them, they're like, I don't what? Bunny outfit? So this passage in Philippians chapter 2 is basically a... Um, Part of his response to them. Now, there is a problem in the church, though. They've, they're very generous, but one of the things that they are doing as well is that they're having little fights. I mean, I have this crazy idea, right, that there are disagreements in a church? No. But in Philippians, that was happening. In fact, a couple of ladies were having some disagreements with each other. And so Paul, early in the letter, he starts wanting to talk about, okay, so how should you get along with one another in the church of God? And the person he points to, of course, is Jesus saying, look, if you think about how much Jesus has done for you and how far he's come for you, it should influence the way that you act toward others, how far you're willing to go for them. And he quotes, quite honestly, an early Christian hymn. Uh, do you remember in school where uh, you had, were told to remember the 50 states or you were told to the capitals of all the states and people always come up with songs for this? Or if you want to remember the books of the Bible, right, they'll, they'll give you, you know, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we put it to song, and it helps you remember. Well, in, the, in this world, there's a lot of people who didn't know how to write, and a lot of people didn't know how to read, and so the way you'd pass on information with each other was in, an, in kind of an oral culture, and you would give hymns rhyming like poems, and people would be able to remember important things through a, through a poem. And so this is what the early church did, is they would teach these poems. So if you want to know who Jesus is and what we believe about a, as a church about Jesus, here's a poem. And one of the earliest poems that we have is in Philippians chapter 2, and Paul's going to actually point it out. And I want to show it to you because it's rich with theology, especially about the generosity of God. So here it is. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and here's the poem, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. I want to deal first with this little phrase here. He, he was in the form of God. What in the world does that mean? So if you spent any time in theology or in the history of the Christian church, you'll know that one of the biggest fights that they had in the early days was about how is Jesus both God and the Father God and the Spirit God and yet they're all not the same person. So Jesus at his baptism is there and the father is speaking to Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit is descending like a dove. They're not all the same thing. Je Jesus is not on the ground saying, here I am being baptized. And then he jumps into heaven. Here is my son that I'm baptized. And then he jumps over to the spirit. Doo -doo 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 -doo. This is, no. It's not three forms of the same person. It, it is three persons. So how should we understand this? It's been a big perplexing challenge. And so we've tried to come up with analogies for this, right? So how, how is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all God at the same time? So people come up with analogies like, well, it's like a clover, a three-leaf clover. Or it's like water, which is ice and steam and, and, and liquid. They're different forms. Or a, a man can be like me, a husband, a father and a, a, a uh, man at the same time, right? Okay. But those all have all sorts of difficulties. So I want to show you one of my favorite videos in the whole world, okay? Uh, this, this is a video that was made by a group called the Lutheran Satire. 
and uh, it's actually called St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. And it will cover some of the challenges with the different analogies I just brought up. Enjoy. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms, liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Mortalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. Yeah, the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism, a heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously... I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. <laughs> okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an animal. Partialism revisited. Fine, the Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. <laughs> Good times, right? Listen, I, I, show you, I show you the video partially because it's fun, but also because uh, they really do get into the idea that it's very difficult to understand the Trinity in many ways, and so lots of people use these analogies, and they come up with them and they don't really convey because they say something that's not actually true about God. And so here's the best image that I can give you about the Trinity, okay? If you wanna have somebody explain it to you, uh, we say that we have the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit, right? All three of these are God. So the Spirit is God, the Son is God, the Father is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Spirit, and Father is not, uh, sorry, Christ is not, a Spirit is not, wait a minute, Son is not the Spirit, you, you can see it. So there you go. I have actually have a friend who's got this as a tattoo on his arm. Uh, you can buy t-shirts that say this. Now you say, why are you going to the detail about the Trinity? Well, one, because we don't ever talk about it, right? You can go through church for years and no one ever stands up in the pulpit and says, that's the Trinity we believe to be true about God. He's three persons, one substance, end of story. Also, I want you to realize that the Son existed eternally in a community of three friends. He needs nothing. He's completely self-sufficient. This, this Godhead, the, there's intra-Trinitarian love. So the idea that the Son would actually give up some of this communion means that Whatever he's doing it for has got to be pretty worth it, at least to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when you come to a passage and it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that's what they're talking about. That's what Paul's saying. He was in this Trinitarian, still is in the Trinitarian uh, setup. He did not count equality with God a thing to be Grasp. This is a word, grasp, that means uh, that's what happens if you're a robber and you go, you steal something and then you take it with you and the police try to come and get it from you and you hold on to it for dear life, right? I'm not giving it up. It's, I think about, whenever I think about that word and the original meaning of it, I think about Gollum in, in, in uh, Lord of the Rings. My precious, you know? I'm not giving up the, the ring. Jesus did not treat his status in the Godhead, in this eternal bliss, as a thing to be held on to, like it's the ring and I will not give it up, I can't go anywhere. Instead, he emptied himself. What, what, I mean, what does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, the passage itself actually explains what he means by taking the form of a servant. This word actually is slave here. He emptied himself, so this God who's eternally existing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son does not cling to the privileges of being in that eternal community, self-sufficient and needing of nothing. Instead, he takes the form of a slave. Specifically, he's born in the likeness of men. Now, that's a description of what we call the incarnation. That, that's a, this, this is a theological description of Christmas. And you and I, because we don't have like a Jewish background and we haven't really steeped ourselves in Old Testament stories and thought and things, this sometimes doesn't hit us like it ought to. So let me try to help you see how crazy it is that this God became man. So if you go to Exodus chapter 19, one of the things that you find, this is where people of Israel come across the Red Sea and they go to this, 
the foot of Mount Sinai, and God is going to come descend upon the mountain. He's going to give the law to Moses. Here's what it says. When, when Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God at Sinai, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord has descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So, so I don't know if you've ever been near a, a mountain that's about to explode. Uh, I'm old enough to remember Mount St. Helens. In fact, I lived in that part of the world when it went off. I, I remember hearing in 1980, I remember hearing in the Seattle area an enormous explosion at Mount St. Helens, which was like near the Oregon border. I remember being in class and it went boom. So this is what's being described here. Smoke and earthquakes and just sheer power on, the, on this mountain. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in thunder, which is something that God does throughout the Old Testament quite a few times, right? He answers in thunder to lots of folks, Job being one of them. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, go down, before we do anything else, Moses, you need to go down and warn the people, lest they break through the Lord, to the Lord, and look, to look, and many of them perish. They can't get near the mountain. Do you understand? They can't touch the mountain. Some of them might think, well, it'd be really great to go up there and see what's going on. Don't let them. Because they'll die. They cannot face the holiness and power of God without, without dying. Because God is transcendent. God is high and lifted up. That's language that's used in Isaiah, who's standing and he sees a vision of God, high and lifted up, and the angels are around singing to him. The doors of the temple are shaking and there's smoke everywhere and he says, woe to me, right? That's, I'm as good as dead, because that's what happens when God shows up and you see him. You don't stand before him. You don't reach out. You don't touch him. You're so afraid that it probably triggers the fight or flight, but nobody fights. They just all run. There's a passage in Isaiah 40 where... Uh, Isaiah is trying to describe the grandeur of God, and God himself gives him the words to use. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell? You've ever been up in the, the Cancock Tower and you look down and go, oh, I could squish everyone. The, the, the Lord sees kings that way. Trump and, and Biden and Xi and Macron and certainly Trudeau. He like, he squishes all of them. He's just like, they're nothing to me. They're their power, their might, their armies are nothing. They're like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens. You know, the things that when you and I go out late at night, we get out into the country and we look, my goodness, look at the stars, look at the sky. 
It's so majestic. God's like, yeah, no, I just stretched that out. Like, I stretched it out like it's a tent. Put up your tent before, right? He just grabs a tarp. Every night, that's, that's, that's what the Lord does to it. That's what it is to him. I'm the one who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. And when he blows on them, that's all that happens. They're just barely there and they're gone. They wither, the tempest carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by, by name. He's talking about the stars. By the greatest, greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Guys, look, this is a picture from the Hubble Space Telescope. This is actually a deep space picture. I'm showing it to you because each one of these little guys here, these are all galaxies. You know, we have the Milky Way galaxy. It has lots and lots of stars in the galaxy. We are one of the solar systems in that galaxy. These are all different galaxies. Do you see them? All the little dots in every little spot. Some are more far away. That's why they're small and some are close by. There are billions of planets in every one of those galaxies. And there are billions of galaxies. And the Lord stretches that like a tarp. In fact, in Isaiah, it says that, uh, th that when he measures it off, he measures it by the breadth of his hand. The millions and millions and millions and billions of light years, the Lord says it's about that far. High and lifted up. Holy, inapproachable, transcendent, glorious, distant. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a food trough because there was no place for them in the inn. Charles Wesley, one of the great hymn writers in the history of the church, in his song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, tried to put verse, tried to put words to this. Come to earth to taste our sadness, he whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness, our redeemer, shepherd, friend, leaving riches without number. Born within a cattle stall. This the everlasting wonder. Christ was born the Lord of all. When Mary is holding him in her arms, he is actively holding together all of the molecules of her body. taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This God, 
being born in the likes of, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Yeah, that's probably a good word to describe it. He humbled himself by becoming not just obedient to the, to the plan of God by coming into a manger. That's, I mean, that's far enough, right? But then, listen, be one thing. He comes down and he's born in a manger and they find him and he becomes the king of the land and everyone bows down to him. That makes a little sense. It's still a huge deal that God did this. I'd expect that, though, if God were going to do this, that he would find himself exalted in earth, yeah? But he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, you and I don't shudder when we think about death on a cross, but it was the most humiliating death that you could have. It was actually designed to be so. The Romans did it so that they could prove to all of their enemies that when they would capture another king and they would bring them back, they would crucify that king and all of his soldiers so that they could say to all of their people and anyone else in the world, this is what we in Rome do. Do not stand against us because if you lose, and you will, we will take the most powerful among you, we will string them up, nail them up, and they will be ex exposed to the elements and the birds of the air will eat their flesh. Uh, crucifixion was a, was a crazy way to kill people. It always began with a whipping. They'd take this big whip, but then they had strands on the whip. It's not like an Indiana Jones, just one. It's... it's it's one whip with several different strands, and at the end of each one of the strands, they would place little pieces of bone or rock, sharp rocks, so that when you would whip, when you would whip the victim, the criminal, the, the strands would wrap around them, stick, and when you pulled, it would rip off the pieces of flesh. Most people, well, many people who faced the whipping didn't make it beyond that. It just bled out. But if you do make it beyond the whipping, what they would do is they would give you the cross beam to the cross. So the cross has a vertical and it has a horizontal. That horizontal piece they would place on your back. And you would have to carry this horizontal piece, having very little skin left on your upper body. And you would have to carry this thing through the streets like a parade. And people would line the streets and they would spit at you and mock you and talk to you about how Rome is so much better. And, and he would, you would carry this thing all the way to the point of your crucifixion. It was always in a public place. It was always along a big street somewhere on the top of a hill so everyone could see. And when you get there, they would you know, put the vertical beam with the cross beam. And then they would nail or wrap your hands or tie your hands to the end of the cross beam. They'd tie it oftentimes because uh, they, those hands slip out. They would try, they couldn't do it in the hands itself. They had to go through the wrists because that's where two bones meet. And that's the only place that could bear the weight of, of your body. Now, you need to bear the weight of your body because the only way for you to breathe on a cross is for you to lift up with your hands, take a breath, and then go back down while your lungs collapse. You have to keep doing this. You have to keep doing this, which is why they nail your feet so that you can push off on something. If they want to make it last a long time, and this was very common, they would put a little seat underneath your bum. So most of our, you know, you have crosses on our necklaces. Most of them should be a cross with a little tiny seat. And you want to make it last so that people can walk by and mock 
longer. They can see the naked, bleeding, defecating body, and they can criticize and mock and blaspheme and whatever until the birds come around and peck his eyes out. When you got good and tired of it, you'd go up and you'd break the shins of the, because they can't push up anymore, right? Then they die. D.E. Burke, one of the scholars uh, about the cross, he actually described it this way. He said, once the condemned was immobilized on the cross, he was left alone, unable to attend to bodily functions, unprotected from inclement weather or flies, and because the place of execution was usually some public street or prominent place, the victim was subjected to abusive words and mockery from passers-by. Often the body was left to putrefy on the cross and become the prey of birds to complete the utter humiliation. Which raises a question for me. If you made the mouths of men and women, would you allow them to use those mouths to mock you? If you gave men their hands, Would you allow them to use those hands to nail you to that cross? If you controlled the birds of the air, would you allow them to circle and pick out your flesh? If you held together the molecules of the bodies of every last person who was blaspheming your name because you're high and lifted up and the angels lay prostrate before you, Kings are grasshoppers to you. If that was all true, would you go through with this? Well, the end of the story isn't just the death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because here's the good news. The next time that you see Jesus, he's not gonna be hanging on a cross receiving the mockery of people. He will be standing in glory and every knee will bow before him. There will be a sword coming out of his mouth to slay the wicked. But here's the thing about this passage that I just can't get over. Okay, I just tried to explain to you that Jesus was exalted before all creation in this holy bliss of three friends. He did not consider that to be grasped onto, but he made himself nothing and became a, a, a slave being born in, in a manger, which is far enough from my point of view, but he went a little bit further, a lot further, and he goes to the indignity of a cross so that then he will ultimately be exalted. When you first, before the foundations of the world, decided how you were going to exalt the living Christ, why would you go this way and not that way? He, do he doesn't need this. 
the universe is no greater necessarily if this happens. So why give like this? God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? Because of love. Because of the depth of the love of God. That Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, listening to the mockers and blasphemers, he does it for the joy set before him. He endures that cross. And the joy is his people being redeemed. That's how far he went. I mean, seriously, guys, think about this. You know, we love the stories in the, in the movies when, you know, there's a king and he, he tells his son, you have to marry a woman of high standing. And he goes and he finds the girl who is, you know, she's, she's a hairdresser or something like that. And she doesn't have any standing and she may be an orphan and he falls in love with her. And the orphan tries to put on the airs of royalty, but everyone knows she's an orphan and the king finds out that she's an orphan and he says to his son, you can't marry her. You have to marry this other person. And he ends up running off and he says to his father, if this means that I have to give up my throne, if this means that I have to give up any inheritance, I will do it because I love her. And we watch the movie and we make a whole channel called Hallmark that does this every single time. And our hearts sing because we think to ourselves, if... If only there was a place and, and a person who would love me like this. And there is. It's true. There's a king who knelt down to become so small so that you and I could be so great. So realize the generosity of God. Okay, so I've got like eight minutes now. Let's finish this, all right? All right, so let's respond to that. I got three things that I think you can do in response to this. Number one, number one thing, uh, stop entertaining the idea that God is stingy. Stop entertaining the idea that God is stingy. I have a dog, her name is Lulu, and she sits near me every time we eat food. And when she sits near me and I hold food up to her, she goes through a series of activities to try to prove to me that I should give her the food, right? Turning around in a circle, rolling over, shaking a paw, laying down, sitting up, back, she's like, just what is it? Give me the food, whatever, I'll do whatever it is to get that food. I just need to know what it is because I don't understand why you're holding it back for me while I'm doing all of this stuff. You and I treat God like this sometimes. We ask God in prayer for particular things. And in our minds, God, the Lord's withholding it from us for some reason. And in our minds, we're like, why is he withholding this? I'm doing all of this stuff. Look, I will roll over. I'll beg. I'll do. What is it that you want, Lord? Give it to me. I can't believe you're so stingy. Or if he gives us something in answer to prayer... We're a little hesitant the next time we pray because we think, well, he already gave it to us and I don't know, he probably ran out of those. I don't want to ask too much. Lord, if there's a choice between this and that, I would prefer this because that is, a, and you can't possibly give both. Guys, I have prayed for enough baseball games in my life to know how it feels to be like, I just want to win. Can't you just let us win? Why are you so stingy? Why do we always have to lose? 
when that gets into your thinking, that, that stingy idea into your thinking, it ends up changing your life significantly. You see God in a way that he is not. Because here's the God, here's the God of the Bible. Uh, the God of the Bible, Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's not a single thing that you have right now in your life. The very breath that you're breathing right now is given to you as an act of grace by God, regardless of your spiritual condition or background. The rain that waters the ground and gives us food given by God. Your working car given by God. All of it given by God. Romans 8, for those of you who are Christians, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Jesus, all, Jesus is the greatest gift God has to give. He's already given that. Do you think that the icing on the cake, something he's gonna be like, well, I can't afford that. Our God is giving. So whenever the thought comes into your mind, which is the same thought, by the way, that Satan in the garden wanted to place in the mind of the woman, that God is stingy and he's withholding something from you. Whenever that thought comes into your mind, you have to say, absolutely not. I know God and I know him to be the one who provides everything that I might enjoy life. First Timothy 6. You gotta fight that fight in your head. It's gonna lead you down a very, very dark place. You'll eventually think of God not as he is, but as Satan wants you to think of him. So stop entertaining that God is stingy. A second, be humble enough to accept the gift. When I was young, I, I grew up, uh, obviously, as a person who was not thin. I've been thinner at certain times of my life and then not so thin. When I was a kid, uh, I was actually an active swimmer and stuff, and so, but I still was not the kind of kid who could climb the monkey bars and pull himself up and things like that. There was just too much going on down here to pull me down. Anyway, there's a big lake near my house, Lake Washington in, uh, in Seattle. And I had a friend who had a sailboat. And we used to go out sailing with him and his family from time to time. We'd go swimming in the lake and then we'd try to get back up. And sometimes the wind would pick up so that it would tilt the boat. We were trying to get it on one side so that the side of the boat would come up and you'd be hanging on to something. My friend, he's one of these little thin guys who's just like one-handed, whoop, he's in the boat. But I'm like dragging on the side. The boat's going and I'm like dragging on the side, and uh, the, his dad would come to the edge and say, just come on and lift yourself up. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just down here for a minute. I just got it. No, no, come on, lift yourself up. Can you do it? Oh, I can do it. I can do it. It's gonna be fine. Okay, I'm just gonna try again here in a minute. Just hold on, just hold on. No, no, you can't do it. Just let me help you. Nope, nope, I got it, I got it, I got it. Eventually, he would reach over the side and he would grab the back of my shorts and he'd launch me onto the deck, like, some whale that he was, you know, beaching on the deck. So many of us think of that we can somehow get into the boat of God. We can somehow ride along with him into eternal bliss if we just try hard enough. Do you know, we're, we're gonna do it. 
I'm going to do all the stuff, go to church, I'm going to keep all the rules and stuff like that. How's that going for you? And Jesus leans over the edge and says, come on, man, I, can just, I, can, I, can, I just need to grab you and pull you up. No, 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 I'll be fine. I, I, don't, I don't want to have to give up any kind of autonomy or anything, just I'll be fine. And finally, Jesus in his grace reaches over and goes, now, you're good, come in. You cannot do anything to deserve the gift of God in Christ. You can't do anything to justify what he's done for you. You can't pay it back in some sense. All you can do is just be like, all right, I'm just gonna let go of this side and you launch me in there. That's it. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, right? Have mercy on me, a sinner, says the tax collector of the distance, and not the Pharisee up close saying, well, I did really well here this last week. I should be in your kingdom. Be humble enough to accept the gift. You, you cannot justify your adoption. That's not how adoption works. I gotta show you a video just because I want to. We're almost done here, but this is, this is, this is a Christmas morning where a young boy um, got the greatest gift he could ever imagine. Adoption. You want to show this? What do you mean, what? Okay, this is for you. This is from all here, of us. Okay, all of us. Carter. You know, if, if, only all, if, if only all of us could experience some kind of joy like that, you know, to be chosen, to have, to have someone know all your flaws and yet still, still take you, that I'm maybe on a Christmas you, you get a gift of adoption. So he's all of us. Do you get it? Don't you see? He's all of us. There's nothing you can do. You just unwrap the present and say, I, thank you. There should never be a moment in your life where you don't realize that, that you're that kid. And that your adoption is so great that the, God is going to actually give you his. You're a co-heir with Christ that eternally you will forever and ever and ever receive all of the blessings that Jesus himself earned. 
That's nuts. And true, and so true. Look, last one. Um, I think we need to be like our generous father then. If God is so generous, then there should be some family resemblance, yes? In the way that Christians treat each other. And yes, what I mean here is, look, we should be known for the generosity we have with our money. Of course, we should be known that way. There are, uh, there are lots of examples in scripture of, of uh, the kind of generosity that is motivated by the knowledge of the gospel and the incarnation. He who is rich became poor that you might become rich. It's supposed to drive forward some sort of understanding of how generous we ought to be with the church, with our family, with the stranger, with the undeserving, all around us. But it's not just money that should mark us. It's also generosity of spirit. It's the kind of giving the benefit of the doubt. Grace, right? When I first uh, moved here, they did a, we did a short video in my driveway in my home in, at my home in Canada. And you guys saw it before I actually came to the church. And it went online. Uh, my wife was in it, and I, I was in it. And it went online. It was a very awkward video. Um, and she was standing there like petrified, and I was like, I'm so excited, I'm so excited. I'm speaking really fast to try, and people online started making comments about it, about how I was dragging my wife here, and how she hates all this, and there's no way, and who says super excited all that time? He kept saying super excited. I'm super mad about him saying super excited. So, here's what people didn't know. That during COVID in Canada, I was not allowed to go out into my driveway. You're only allowed to go into your front Porch. And here I was out in the front driveway on my property, but still this was illegal to stand in my front property and be videoed. They were standing in the street with a long shot on the camera, and we were standing there. We lived on a cul-de-sac, but people for some reason were all coming in the cul-de-sac in cars, and all of our neighbors started stepping out onto their, onto their porches to see what was going on. You do know that they had like an active hotline to report bad behavior among people during COVID in Canada. And neighbors were calling up and saying, he's in his driveway. And people, the, the health officers would come and they'd check you out, make sure that you were like, you bad, bad guy, you have a fine of however much money. We get people who visited like us. So my wife and I were like, okay, we gotta make this video. People can't come into our home because that's actually awful apparently. So we go out there onto the driveway and we're like, okay, take the shot, take the shot. And my wife is looking down the street and noticing everybody in their houses now staring at us and she's whispering to me, hurry, 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 hurry. And I'm like, oh, I'm super excited. This is gonna be fantastic. We can't wait to be there, okay? <laughs> and then cut. We ran back inside. There is always another factor in someone else's case about which you know nothing. But we as Christians love to pass judgment based upon very little information. Wouldn't it be delightful if we were known for generosity of spirit that took the form of grace and extending it to people and saying, listen, I don't know your situation. I don't know. It looks like this to me, but God's got something else going on there, and there's probably a good reason. My wife, when we drive down the road, and there's somebody who drives past me very fast, which happens you know, every little while here in Chicago, but they drive by really fast, and they're like, whatever, and I'm like, oh, how dare you're cutting everybody off, and I start beat red, and she goes, oh, come on. He's probably on his way home to get his wife because she's having a baby. A lot of babies being had in Chicago. 
But isn't she amazing? Yes! Yes! There's always another factor in someone else's case about which you know nothing. The Church of Jesus Christ should look like it's our Father who shows us that kind of grace. Amen? Let me pray, Lord. I'm thankful for your goodness and your kindness to us. I pray, Lord, that all these things we talk about, Father, would find their home in our hearts. Spirit, would you come? Would you take the words that you yourself inspired? And would you apply them to our hearts? We thank you for our Lord Jesus. And Father, thank you for sending this son. And we pray in Jesus' name, through the Spirit, for the glory of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org.